Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Today's episode is brought to you by shamelessly plugging Queens of England podcast branded merchandise. Impress your friends, amaze your co-workers, further attract your lovers with these limited edition t-shirts, hoodies, sweaters, mugs, bags and stickers from your favourite history podcast. They are only available until Tuesday and then they will be gone, maybe forever. So it's now or never. Head on over to queensofenglandpodcast.com and click on the merch tab to check out all the designs and get in those all-important orders. Okay, was that shameless enough? Good, because I felt really kind of dirty then. I'd like to thank all of my Queen's councillors on Patreon, and in particular, our newly initiated members, Ashley and Betsy. I really appreciate your support and hope that you're enjoying making this show so much more fun to make. Remember, if you'd like to join the council, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash Queen's of England podcast, where you'll find all the info on how to join. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 64, Catherine of Braganza, Fire, Treason, and Plot.
In the last episode, we saw how the reign of Catherine of Braganza had gotten off to an extremely shaky start. Her Catholicism, sheltered early life and poor grasp of English language or culture had made her an outsider at her new court, and the presence of rivals for the affection of her husband in Barbara Palmer and Francis Stuart, though the latter was a reluctant participant in that game, had hardly helped. Catherine had suffered illness, depression and isolation in those first two years. And sadly for her, things were only about to get worse. News of a deadly outbreak of bubonic plague had been coming over from the continent throughout the previous year, but it hit London with a vengeance in the summer of 1665. It was not quite on the same scale of the Black Death of the 14th century, but it still killed indiscriminately. Tens of thousands fled the city, including the king and queen. But while on the road, Charles fell ill. Everyone, including Catherine, feared that he had caught the disease, but it turned out to be a false alarm, though it did put everyone on edge. In January of 1666, Catherine was, at long last, pregnant. It was a joyous moment for her. Finally, she could become the queen and mother that she had always wanted to be. Now she could take her proper place at her husband's side. But triumph turned to disaster only a month later, when Catherine miscarried. But the horrible no-good year of 1666 had only just started for her. In April, news reached her that her mother, Louisa, had died, putting her and her ladies into mourning. And then, there came the fire. The famous Great Fire of London began in the early hours of the 2nd of September on Pudding Lane, and before long it seemed that the whole city was ablaze. It ripped through homes, businesses, churches and palaces. It melted chains, gates and even roofs. The court was at Whitehall at the time, not at all far from the epicentre of the blaze, and for a while it looked like they might be in danger. Catherine spent hours every day in the palace chapel, praying relentlessly for the deliverance of the city and her husband. After several terrible days, the fire was finally extinguished, but the city lay in ruins. The plague and fire of the previous two years coincided with the Second Anglo-Dutch War, which was going very badly for England, with peak humiliation occurring when a Dutch fleet sailed up the Thames virtually unopposed and destroyed much of the English fleet at anchor in 1667. The so-called Raid on the Medway is quite possibly the worst naval defeat in English or indeed British history and forced an end to the war on Dutch terms. So, things were going super badly for England. But it seems that the court was only interested in one thing. Catherine's fertility. Securing the succession was one of the first duties of kingship, and indeed the prime imperative of queenship. But for Charles and Catherine, it had heightened importance. The kingdom had just gone through decades of civil war, followed by the temporary abolition of the monarchy, and it was vital that the next transfer of power was seamless. Now to be fair, Catherine had only been on the throne for four years, but she had become a queen at the age of 23, and was now approaching her 30s, and so it was feared that she didn't have all that many childbearing years left. There was a faction at court that contended that she was infertile, and, moreover, that she had known this from the beginning and not told anyone. This is, you know, crazy, but it was the talk of the town. One person, though, who did not share this view was the king. Now, I was pretty hard on Charles in the last episode, portraying him perhaps as a two-faced cheat, but let's remember that this was the 17th century. Things were different back then. In his view, his various affairs were entirely separate from his duties to his wife. 
he had great affection and respect for her. The fact that he was sleeping with mistresses was by the by. In particular, he was impressed by her efforts to get pregnant. Remember all the effort that she had gone to in the spa towns associated with fertility that we talked about last week? He had no desire to ditch Catherine. But that did not stop the gossips from whispering and a pro-divorce faction beginning to form. Now, here is an interesting bit of linguistic history here. This party, this pro-divorce party, consisted of five leading members. Clifford, Arlington, Buckingham, Ashley and Lauderdale. Notice what their initials spell? Cabal. The word had been around for several centuries, but now it came to have its modern meaning, that of a group of like-minded people working towards a self-interested common goal. And that goal was to replace Catherine. Their leader was the Duke of Buckingham, and he can only be described as a blue-sky thinker. His first great plan was to have Catherine kidnapped and then transported to a plantation in the Americas. He actually pitched this to the king. Shockingly, Charles shut that down for being, you know, insane. He told him, quote, It would be a wicked thing to make a poor woman miserable only because she is my wife and has no children by me, which is no fault of hers. Which was, to be fair, quite an enlightened view for the time. His next suggestion was a little more realistic, that she agree to a divorce and be sent to a convent. But again, Charles refused. Like I said, he had no intention of divorcing his wife. He stated that if she wished to do so, then he would not stand in her way, but he was not going to force her. His faith seemed to have been vindicated in 1670, when Catherine fell pregnant again. But she lost that baby too, after she sadly contracted a mild strain of smallpox. Charles's affairs, though, continued to embarrass his wife. It wasn't the fact that he was having the affairs that was so damaging to her as such. It was how brazenly and openly that he conducted them, and the status to which he raised those women. It was profoundly disrespectful, especially when she got caught in the middle of lovers' tiffs. One such example occurred with Frances Stewart. She may have been engaged in flirtation with the king, but had never intended to sleep with him. She cared too much for her good name. That did not stop him from being infatuated with her, causing great jealousy in Barbara Palmer. She decided to betray her former friend and tell Charles to go visit her bedchamber when she knew that she was being entertained by a suitor, the Duke of Richmond. Bravely, the Duke jumped out of the window to avoid the king's ire, leaving him to remonstrate with his would-be lover, who was equally furious at his presumption. But she knew that her position was under threat, as Charles could prevent her from getting the marriage that she wanted with the Duke. So, she threw herself at Catherine's feet and tearfully begged her to intervene and protect her. Catherine was nothing if not a kindly woman. She agreed and argued with Charles that he should allow their marriage to take place. It was unfair to do anything else. The king told her that he agreed, but secretly tried to prevent it from happening behind the scenes. But Francis and the Duke were wise to it and eloped. Charles was heartbroken, but found solace, not only with Barbara Palmer, but also a succession of actresses, including Nell Gwynn and Mull Davis. When Frances eventually returned, Catherine invited her to become one of her own ladies-in-waiting, and was delighted to finally have an ally in her corner. But Catherine definitely seems to have made peace with the mistresses by now. An example of this occurred in 1669, Charles had announced to his wife that he had a bit of a cold and would be resting in bed for a time. Concerned, 
Catherine came to his chambers early one morning to check on his health. After entering the room, she noticed that, under his bed, there was a little shoe poking out. She said, amused, quote, I will not stay for fear that the pretty fool that owns that little slipper might take cold. This, though, didn't stop her enemies from throwing attractive young women at the king. It seems that they were trying to find an Anne Boleyn that might try to get Charles to emulate his ancestor and divorce his wife Catherine, but the king remained resolute. Bills were entered into Parliament, but Charles made sure that they were squashed. By 1670, though, Catherine had decided that she needed a change of scene. What with Charles's bed being filled by various mistresses and courtiers seeking to have her overthrown, the court was just not all that great a place for her to be. So, she decided to leave and repair to Somerset House. If you remember, this had been the home of both of her predecessors as Queen, Anne of Denmark and Henrietta Maria, and the move gave her a new lease on life. She seems to have become more playful and more determined to enjoy herself and surrounded herself with friends, including Frances Stuart and the Duchess of Buckingham, who, despite her husband's attempts to end her marriage, became a close friend to Catherine. This is all best shown when, in the summer of 1671, she decided that she wanted to go to a fair in Essex. She and her gal pals went incognito, dressed in what they believed to be in the clothes that the other half wore, and strode in, not bothering it seems to disguise their posh accents. Shockingly, they were quickly discovered, forcing them to make a dash for their coaches. Catherine also became a bit of a trendsetter. She began to form her own sense of style, promoting the wearing of shorter dresses that left the feet exposed. She also, and this was a wonderful surprise for me, popularised the drinking of tea in England. Portugal, as one of Europe's great trading empires of the time, was shipping great quantities of tea over from the Far East, and had become a very fashionable drink there, thanks largely to its high price and exclusivity. But for whatever reason, it had not caught on in England, and was only drunk for medicinal purposes. Indeed, when Catherine had first arrived in England and was asked if she required refreshment, she asked for tea, but was given ale instead, which is, you know, hardly the same. Catherine had a great loving for tea, and she became well known for it. Even in her early years, when she was decidedly unpopular, tea was something that increased her social cachet. On her birthday in 1663, the following poem was written for her. Venus her myrtle, Phoebus has his bays. Tea both excels, which she vouchsafes to praise. The best of queens, the best of herbs, we owe to that bold nation which the way did show, to the fair region where the sun doth rise, whose rich productions we so justly prize. The muse's friend, tea does our fancy aid. Regress those vapours which the head invade, and keep the palace of the soul serene, fit on her birthday to salute the queen. She also found some time to indulge her Catholicism. If you remember, in her marriage treaty, she had been given leave to practice her religion, so long as she did it in private and didn't attempt anything close to proselytising. She could be Catholic, but woe betide her if she attempted to convert any good, God-fearing Englishman. Despite this, she managed to do a little bit of sneaky Catholicking by inviting an order of nuns called the Sisters of Loretto in to form a girls' boarding school in London. They hid their Catholicism by not wearing habits, and Catherine provided them with a continued source of funding. 
She also argued the case for a cardinal to be raised and sent to England, and also for a Catholic bishop, who could resolve doctrinal and legal disputes between English Catholics. She also made no effort to prevent English people from attending her own religious services, causing the Venetian ambassador to remark, quote, She causes the free exercise of the Roman Church to glow amid the fog of these heresies. But things appeared to be changing for England when it came to religion, and it all had a lot to do with the diplomatic situation. Last time we left England's foreign policy, they had just had their butts whipped in the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Well, they wanted some payback, and so Buckingham was ordered to begin negotiations with the French through Charles' sister Manette about an alliance. Terms were agreed and the two parties signed the Treaty of Dover, whereby they agreed to fight together against the Dutch. But there was a secret clause. Charles agreed, in exchange for a bucket load of cash, to convert England back to Catholicism. Now, this secret treaty was, well, secret, so no one outside the cabal knew what Charles had agreed to. But he signalled his intentions in 1672 with the Royal Declaration of Indulgence a proclamation designed to promote religious toleration, removing penal laws against Catholics and non-conforming Protestants. That sounds great to those of us in liberal pluralist societies, but this was a big red flag for Protestant conservatives at court, who saw it as the thin end of the wedge, one that pointed straight at Rome and the re-adoption of Catholicism. And, of course, they were dead right. Things were compounded the following year when Charles's brother James made public something that had long been suspected, that he had converted to Catholicism. This was all far too much for Parliament, who forced Charles to withdraw the Declaration of Indulgence and perform a complete U-turn by signing a piece of legislation that they had just passed, called the Test Act. This was a bill that banned anyone from public service, royal employment or military service, if they refused to make the following declaration. I do declare that I do believe that there is not any transubstantiation in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, or in the elements of the bread and wine, at or after the consecration thereof, by any person whatsoever. This was carefully worded to essentially require all those covered by the declaration to convert or resign. This meant a clearing out of many of Charles's allies from his employ, including his brother, the heir presumptive, who had to resign as Lord High Admiral. Catherine too, whose household had been understandably full of Catholics, saw many of her ladies turfed out. There was then another attempt to get rid of Catherine, this time led by Charles's new Lord Chancellor, Lord Shaftesbury, who had previously been Baron Ashley, one of the A's in the cabal. He offered Charles a literal bribe of £500,000, a colossal amount of money, if he would just divorce his Catholic wife. But, again, he refused point-blank. But Shaftesbury would not give up this particular goose. This was now urgently linked to the succession. With Charles seemingly highly unlikely to have children with Catherine now, the throne was presumably going to be passed to a Catholic, James, Duke of York, and no one wanted that. Remember, England's last Catholic monarch had been Bloody Mary, and there was considerable fear that history could repeat itself. Shaftesbury tried to get Charles to say that he had secretly married Lucy Walters, the mother of Charles's eldest bastard, the Duke of Monmouth, before he had been born. This would have the dual effect of giving England a Protestant heir and getting rid of Catherine, as this would mean that her marriage had never been legal. 
Charles, you guessed it, was no more impressed by this than any other attempt to unseat Catherine, stating that, quote, For the voiding of any dispute which may happen in time to come concerning the succession to the crown, I do here declare in the presence of Almighty God that I never gave nor made any contract of marriage, nor was married to any woman whatsoever but to my present wife, Queen Catherine. So that's nice and clear, right? Case closed. Of course not, because things were about to get a whole lot worse for Catherine, because a great scandal was about to engulf England. The Popish Plot. A man named Titus Oates, a failed Catholic priest who had dropped out of Cambridge under a homosexual cloud, alleged that there was a great Catholic plot to launch a massive rebellion, kill the king and massacre every Protestant in England, and restore England to the Catholic fold under the control of the Jesuits. They had also been behind the Great Fire of London and pretty much anything that had ever gone wrong in England. It was a crazy story, reminiscent of the most lurid accounts of the gunpowder plot. But there was just one major difference. This was utter crap. There was no such plan. It was all a lie. A magistrate was appointed to take evidence, but he was soon found dead in a ditch, impaled on his own sword. This whipped up hysteria and the magistrate's funeral was attended by a violent anti-Catholic mob. Not content with his already humongous lie, Oates then went further, implicating five lords in the plot, and then, for our purposes the most important bit, which was that Catherine was in on the whole thing. Oates claimed that Catherine had been behind the murder of the magistrate, enlisting an ex-felon named Bedloe, who gave the following statement. Quote, The murder was committed by the Queen's popish servants at Somerset House. That he saw the body there, lying on the Queen's back stairs. That it lay there two days, and he was offered 2,000 guineas to remove it. That at last it was removed at nine o'clock that night by some of the Queen's people. Charles didn't believe a word of any of this. Firstly, he knew the five lords in question. Half of them detested the other half, and he had been with some of them at the time when they were alleged to have been plotting his death. He also knew Somerset House, and the place described in Bedloe's testimony, and knew that there was no way a body could have remained there unnoticed. However, given the seriousness of the accusations, he was compelled to continue to listen to Oates, who, seeing that he wasn't getting anywhere, elected to make his accusations bolder. He accused Catherine of planning to kill her husband, He testified in front of Charles to that effect. Here it is in the diary of John Evelyn. Quote, In the preceding July, he saw a letter in which it was affirmed by Sir George Wakeham, the Queen's Catholic physician, that Her Majesty had been brought to give her assent to the murder of the King. That subsequently, the Queen's secretary came with a message from Her Majesty for certain Jesuits to attend her with whom, one day in August, he went to Somerset House for no other purpose, as it should appear, than to be made an unnecessary witness of their high and horrible designs. They went into Her Majesty's closet, leaving him in the antechamber, the door of which these clever plotters were so obliging as to leave ajar, in order to enable him to hear the discourse which, he pretended, passed between them and the Queen. He said, He heard a female voice exclaim, I will no longer suffer such indignities to my bed. I am content to join in procuring his death and the propagation of the Catholic face. And that she would assist Sir George Wakeham in poisoning the king. He added that, When the Jesuits came out, he requested to see the queen. 
and had, as he believed, a gracious smile of her majesty. And while he was within, he heard the queen ask Father Harcourt whether he had received the last 10,000 leave. And as far as he could judge, it was the same voice which he had heard when he was in the anteroom. And he saw no other woman there but the queen. Again, Charles knew that this was utter crap, as the testimony had several factual inaccuracies that he could easily poke holes in. But when the story was backed up by Bedloe, it became out of his hands. They would have to have their accusations heard by Parliament. The Commons, being as fervent an anti-Catholic body as you could find, totally bought into the accusations. They called for Catherine to be either sent back to Portugal or thrown in the Tower. But the Lords, being close to the King and less fanatically Anglican, were unconvinced. This was sparse consolation to Catherine, who lived in constant fear of arrest, kidnap, or public lynching. News of these attacks on her good name reached Portugal, where there were anti-English riots in support of their native daughter. Her brother, King Peter II, was very worried, and offered to have her escorted back to the safety of her native land. Catherine wrote the following in response, referring to herself in the third person. Quote, her Majesty hath borne with a great deal of patience many inconveniences, but now her patience is quite tired out, seeing herself accused of consenting to the death of the king, and she has only this to bear her up, that his majesty continues his wanted kindness to her, and that he and the nobility are far from believing the accusation. Charles also wrote to Peter, assuring him that he believed his sister to be innocent, but that he was powerless to prevent Parliament from continuing their investigation. He wished for her to remain with him as his wife, and Catherine had no intention of shrinking from the fight. Still fearing for his sister's life, King Peter sent an ambassador, the Marquis of Aroche, over to England to take her home, essentially ordering her on his own authority. But she reacted angrily, sending a letter back to her brother, saying that he had no right to do this. She accused him and the Marquis of making everything so much worse. Quote, by the chastisement of God, I have been forced to give evidence of the truth of what I did not think has been doubted. But it is your minister who has done these services to you and me, and forces me to demonstrations such as no slanders whatever laid upon me by my enemies compelled me to do till now. Catholics by now have been banned from London, forbidden from even coming within ten miles of the city, and Parliament underwent a thorough search. No one wanted a repeat of the gunpowder treason. Oates' stories were added to by chances and attention seekers, all either fingering new suspects or adding to the case against the currently accused. There were lynchings and mass executions around the country for treason on the lightest of charges. It was, as I said earlier, a time of mass hysteria. Things then reached fever pitch when Charles suddenly fell ill. Poison, came the cry. The Catholics have finally got to him. But it turned out to be just a fever, and Charles made a full recovery. Finally, after a few months, things began to calm. The brutality of the parliamentary repression and the constant protestations of innocence from men of hitherto good character began to sway the public conscience. The final nail in Oates' cause was the trial of Catherine's physician. He was the man who had been accused of being the one who would actually administer the poison to the king on Catherine's orders, but the case against him was pretty thin, and he was acquitted. Oates was finally discredited, and turfed out of his grace and favour apartment that Parliament provided for him. He was arrested for sedition, fined and thrown in jail. 
During the reign of King James, he would be tried for perjury and sentenced to being whipped through London and imprisoned for life. He would eventually be pardoned by William and Mary, but never regained his good name. And good riddance, may I say. The final act of the Popish plot was one final accusation against Catherine by a member of the household of one of Charles's mistresses. But instead of hearing these accusations, he had the man tried and executed. Shaftesbury too was brought up on treason charges as he was suspected of being part of the conspiracy to discredit Catherine and was sent to the Tower. So, we have finally now reached the early 1680s and everything seemed to be coming up Catherine. She wrote to her brother, quote, I am happy. I have everything that can give me complete satisfaction in this life. In 1683, the poet Edmund Waller wrote the following ode at New Year. What revolutions in the world have been? How are we changed since we first saw the Queen? She, like the sun, doth still the same appear, bright as she was on her arrival here. Time had commissioned mortals to impair, but things celestial is obliged to spare. May every new year find her still the same, in health and beauty, as she hither came. Charles and Catherine in these years seem to have become a very loving couple taking walks together and spending more time in each other's company than they had ever done before. It seems to me that finally they understood each other. They had stood together during the tumult of the Popish plot, determined to stay together even when it had perhaps seemed opportune and safest to split. To dispassionate eyes, divorcing Catherine actually seems to make a great deal of sense for Charles. He had no heir, his brother was likely to be a divisive ruler, and a new wife could provide him with that, But he was happy with Catherine. He loved her in his own way and was determined to keep her. For Catherine, staying in England during those years meant constant fear and peril. She had been insulted and catcalled from all sides, but she too was determined to stay. They had remained steadfastly loyal to one another, and this seems to have impressed and perhaps even surprised them both. The diarist John Evelyn relates the extravagant celebrations put on to celebrate Catherine's birthday in 1684. Quote, There were fireworks on the Thames before Whitehall, with pageants of castles, forts and other devices of girandolas, serpents, the king and queen's arms and mottos, all represented in fire. But the most remarkable was the several fires and skirmishes in the very water, which actually moved a long way, burning under the water, now and then appearing above it, giving reports like muskets and cannon, with grenades and other devices. It was concluded with a ball, where all the young ladies and gallants danced in the great hall. The court had not been so brave and rich in apparel since His Majesty's restoration. Remember back when Catherine was isolated, friendless and penniless? How things had changed. But, of course, the arc of history can sometimes have a funny sense of humour. In the months following Catherine's birthday, Charles began to complain of a sore leg, stomach pains and low energy. His condition steadily worsened as the year ticked over to 1685 and it was clear to all that he was on his deathbed. Now Mary of Modena, the wife of the Duke of York who was about to become James II, relates the following story. When I had been there some time, the Queen, who had hitherto remained speechless, came to me and said, My sister, I beseech to you to tell the Duke, who knows the King's sentiments with regard to the Catholic religion as well as I do, to endeavour to take advantage of some good moments. Now this is huge. 
Remember, Charles had promised to return England to the Catholic fold in the secret clauses in the Treaty of Dover. But he had not done that, nor had previously announced his conversion to Catholicism publicly. What Mary is saying here is that, while Charles was in his heart a Catholic, he had not fully converted and would not do so unless he got a serious nudge. So according to this account, Catherine is complicit in what is about to become Charles' deathbed conversion to Catholicism. Now this account is disputed, with some historians saying that she knew about it but was not involved in making it happen, but I happen to believe that she had a role to play in it. A Catholic priest was smuggled in down a secret staircase in the palace and heard Charles' final confession and administered communion. Catherine was an absolute state during her husband's final days, weeping and collapsing several times, rarely leaving his side. When at one point she begged his forgiveness for having wronged him, he exclaimed, quote, She begs my pardon? I beg hers with all my heart. He died on the 6th of February 1685 of what appears to be apoplexy. He had been Catherine's husband for 23 complicated and difficult years. He had humiliated her with mistresses and his impatience in her early years in England. But he never stopped being protective of her, and she never wavered in her affection for him. But now their partnership was at an end. What was next in store for Catherine? She was granted a generous pension by the new king of £50,000 and allowed to remain in Somerset House and probably looked forward to a quiet retirement from public life. But her time in the spotlight was not over just yet. The Duke of Monmouth, Charles's eldest illegitimate son, had fallen from favour rather spectacularly during the later years of his father's reign and had lived in semi-exile in the Dutch Republic but had always considered himself the heir apparent, not least because he was a Protestant. When Charles's Catholic brother came to the throne, he started planning an invasion and insurrection. He landed in the West Country and gathered troops before being defeated by government forces at Sedgemoor. He escaped, but was later captured. Knowing the penalty for treason, he appealed to his stepmother for intercession. Now Catherine, despite everything, had always been kind to Charles's bastards. She pleaded with her brother-in-law to spare Monmouth's life, which is a remarkable show of loyalty to her former husband since Monmouth was fervently anti-Catholic. Her efforts were, however, in vain. King James could not tolerate treason, and so Monmouth was executed. Catherine's life under James was, for the most part, calm. She had far more freedom to practice her religion and retreated from court life. She no longer had much of a role in England, she had no children's support, and the new king already had a wife, and so she began to agitate to return to Portugal. For that, she needed her brother King Peter's permission, but he was not especially inclined to have his sister return. He would have to support her, and who knew what kind of mischief she might get up to. Remember, they had not seen each other for over 25 years, and were now strangers to each other. Catherine wrote to him, exaggerating her poor health and the potential dangers in England that she faced, but he was uninterested in paying for the ship to have her return. Since she did not have the money to fund the expedition herself, she resorted to suing the Earl of Clarendon. This shocked the court and led King James to promise to fund a ship that could take her back to her native land. She remained in England to witness the birth of James and Mary's first son and stand as godmother to the boy. 
But, of course, that birth led to the invasion of England by William of Orange and the usurpation of James's throne. This meant a Protestant restoration and made Catherine's position as a high-ranking Catholic rather precarious. She begged her brother to give her passage back to Portugal, but, again, he didn't provide her with a ship. All the while, the new regime began their oppression of English Catholics, passing a bill that, amongst other things, reduced her servants down to just 18, meaning that she had to move out of Somerset House and into some cottages in Islington. She was forced to stay low and try to avoid the repression, but it would not be until 1692 that she finally managed to secure her passage out of England. Despite everything, she had remained a popular figure ever since the collapse of the Popish plot, and so when she departed London, she was cheered on by a great crowd and a gun salute from the Tower of London. She sailed to France, where King Louis XIV granted her an overland escort to Spain, detouring via James II's court in exile. Her brother had sent an escort that picked her up on the border and saw her all the way through Spain and back to her native land. Her return was the matter of much rejoicing. She had always been a popular figure in Portugal, and there were numerous feasts and pageants put on in her honour. Everyone was fascinated by this English noblewoman that stood in their midst, with her revealing dresses and foreign mannerisms. She sparked a fashion revolution at court, with all the court ladies seeking to copy this new modern look. She first settled in Alcantara, a palace just outside Lisbon, before moving into a new residence at Benposta that had been specially built for her, and remained a venerable figure, though not tremendously involved in court affairs. Once again, it looked like she was ready for retirement, but she had one last role to play on the political stage. In 1700, a great European war broke out over the succession to the throne of Spain, as it was claimed by a pro-Habsburg and pro-French candidate. Portugal backed the Habsburg candidate, Charles Archduke of Austria, and given their proximity, it was possible that the kingdom could become a theatre in the conflict and her monarchy endangered. Let's not forget that it had not been that long since Portugal had been ruled by Spain. The danger was then exacerbated when King Peter fell seriously ill. His heir was his son John, but he was only a teenager and too young to rule alone, especially in such dangerous times. This meant that Peter needed to appoint someone as regent, as he was not well enough to rule a kingdom at war. And since his wife had recently died, he chose his sister in 1705. Now, let's cast our minds way back to when Catherine was being pitched to Charles as a potential wife way back when. One of her selling points had been her complete lack of education in political, diplomatic and military affairs. During her time as Queen of England, she had had little to no political influence, especially not when it came to war. And yet now she was being pitched into the greatest conflict that Europe had seen since the end of the Thirty Years' War. But, by all accounts, she rose to the task superbly. There was a huge amount to do. There were troops fighting the pro-French Spanish that needed reinforcements, supplies and weapons, all of which she expertly provided. She faced down pro-French opposition at court and saw her troops win a series of superb victories. She also acted as a mother figure to her nephew, the soon-to-be King John V, and helped him come to terms with the fact that he would soon be king. She made sure that he got the right tutors and acted as a positive political role model for him. This was her time to shine and she thrived as her nation's saviour. But once again, history proved to have a cruel sense of humour. She had suffered ill health on and off again for a while, 
but on the 31st of December of 1705, after a few months as regent, she complained of stomach pains, and just a few hours later, she was dead. All of Portugal was in shock at the news. They had loved their queen regent, but it was time to say goodbye. She was buried in the monastery at Belém, though her body was moved in the 20th century to the Braganza Mausoleum in Lisbon. Catherine of Braganza is yet another of England's forgotten queens. Those that do recall her tend to see her as the jilted wife, a woman cast aside by her husband who spent his entire reign chasing every skirt but hers. And while there is truth in that caricature, there is a lot more to her than that. She had received an education inadequate to the life that she would end up leading. I went to live in a court that was alien to her in every way, from its religion to its sense of style. She suffered humiliation and heartbreak, danger and isolation, but made it through. She was a survivor, and in my research I've been constantly impressed by her resilience and strength. She left no children as a legacy, and her impact on England's political life was, to be fair, pretty limited. But there are some things that have outlasted her. I've already mentioned her role in the popularisation of tea, which would in the end become essentially our national drink. Her dowry brought in the port of Bombay, and the trade in tea had a great deal to do with the growth and prosperity of both that port city and the English Empire. Her dowry had also brought the port of Tangiers, and the regiment tasked to defend the town was later named the Queen's Royal Surrey Regiment in her honour. This regiment lasted for 400 years, and fought in almost every major British war that you can think of, from the Peninsular War against Napoleon, all through World War I, including at the Marne and Spring Offensive, and then in World War II, where it fought the Japanese in Burma. All through it, its regimental march was named for its former patron's house, the Braganza. Finally, for you New Yorkers out there, it's widely suspected that the Borough of Queens is named for her. This was fitting, as Brooklyn was formerly named King's County after her husband. To commemorate their links with Catherine, there was money raised for a 30-foot-plus-high statue to be erected in her honour in the 1980s, designed by Audrey Flack. It would have stood on the Hudson River, facing out towards her native land. But, sadly for us, there was widespread objection to it, based on the links between the House of Stuart and the transatlantic slave trade, and so the project was abandoned. The statue was eventually built, but to a much smaller size. But perhaps more fittingly, it stands in Lisbon, in her homeland, the only place that had ever truly appreciated her. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Apply. See site for details. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 